has no labels. I don't know if you've seen uh, this online or seen uh, TV commercials. It, 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 there's a website, and uh, it's not an altogether bad thing. I mean, some of what it says is uh, love has no race, things like that. But it also says things like love has no gender, Love has no sexuality. Uh, some of the commercials show people of the same sex kissing uh, each other. And, and basically, this is our cultural narrative today. If two people love each other, who is anybody else to say that that relationship is wrong? Is this not the cultural narrative? So, it raises a question, and this is what we're going to try to address today. Can love ever be wrong? Now, the kind of initial answer to that, even in a sense, the biblical answer uh, to that, it, it, even based on what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, is love can't be wrong. But that kind of leads to the question of what is love? And, and, and the question that we addressed a couple of weeks ago is, can you actually have love without morality? Can you actually separate the two? And so even in this question, can love be wrong? If two people say that they're in relationship together, could that be wrong? Well, think about what that means. Let's say two people say they love each other, a man and a woman, but they're not married, they're living together, is that wrong? Well, the answer biblically is yes. So am I saying they don't love each other? I'm not saying that they don't love each other. I'm just saying that an immoral sexual expression, is that right? What about two people of the same sex in a relationship? What about if a man says, I love my wife, but I love my mistress too? Is that love? What about if a man has multiple wives? He lives in Utah or something. And uh, he's like, I love all my wives. I mean, come on, you can even get a TV show today if you do that. What about if a brother and sister say, we love each other in a sexual way? What about a 60-year-old man and a 13-year-old girl? We love each other. Is that Okay. What about, I saw a TV show one time just channel surfing, and uh, I don't even remember the name of the show, but this just caught my attention. It, it was featuring someone, it was about people who are, I mean, they're not literally, but who are, quote, married to and living as though in the full realm of what we think of as marriage with a mannequin, Is that love? Um, now, let me ask another question. Beyond can love ever be wrong? If you think certain types of sexual activity, um, homosexual sexual activity, or whatever you want to talk about is wrong, does that make you a mean-spirited, narrow-minded bigot? Because is this not also the cultural narrative? Now, let me, I want us to think about this in a couple of different ways. 
you could believe that homosexuality is right or wrong and still be a mean-spirited, narrow-minded bigot, but it doesn't necessarily make you that, I don't think. Why would I say this? If, if you say, if I say homosexuality is wrong and somebody else says it's right, how is what I'm saying any more narrow-minded than what they're saying? The reality is ideas aren't narrow or broad. Ideas are true or false. But even beyond that, there are certainly people who think homosexuality are wrong that are mean-spirited, bigoted people that mistreat people, and that's sin. But you don't necessarily have to be that way. In fact, there's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. I'm going to reference her more than once in this message. Uh, but she was a practicing uh, lesbian who was a, a writer and a tenured professor at Syracuse University who is, is now a Christian and has written a couple of books uh, about this. But what started her on her journey to becoming a Christian was she published a critique of um, Promise Keepers and she talked about how, you know, in her career as a writer, both as a non-Christian and now as a Christian, she's gotten all kinds of responses. And she says, you get the fan mail and you get the hate mail. But she got one letter after she wrote this critique of Promise Keepers. This was back in the late 1990s. And that didn't really fit in either one of those categories. She said, I'd never gotten anything like that uh, before or, 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 or since. And it wasn't fan mail. It wasn't hate mail. It was a pastor who very lovingly was asking her uh, some questions about what she wrote. And she said, this punctured my worldview. This was the beginning of my journey toward Christ. In fact, she uh, ended up becoming uh, friends with this pastor and his wife. They began to have her over for dinner to read the Bible together. And after about two years, uh, I mean, she started going to their church in the meantime. And after about two years, she became a Christian. She's now a pastor's wife. But this man raised questions but he did it in a loving way, and God used that to change her life. Now, on the other hand, and we don't need to cede this ground. I mean, just because you think something is wrong, you have the right to do that. But it doesn't mean that everybody who thinks homosexuality is right is the sweetest, kindest person on the face of the earth either. There's a man by the name of Tim Gill who started something called the Gill Foundation. I had never heard of this until this past week. But this man has invested about half a billion, with a B, about $500 million in promoting you know, gender homosexual kind of causes. In fact, he would be, in what's happened in the courts and what's happened with their issue in this nation, he would want to be one of the key people behind this. And he said in an interview in regard to this, and I think in context, he doesn't mean it as badly as it sounds, but he said this, he said, we're going to punish the wicked. Meaning that if you oppose this agenda, Basically, we're going to bring you down. I've never said anything like that about someone who espouses homosexuality. So it doesn't necessarily make you mean-spirited, narrow-minded. But what it would seem like to me when we think about these questions 
is at some point it has to come back to what's right and what's wrong. Again, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you can't separate love and morality. So what I want us to do, let's, let's read Romans 13, 8 through 10, and then I just kind of want to review uh, quickly the points we talked about last time, but kind of you know, relate them to what we're talking about today, and, and then just kind of look at this question of homosexuality and gender. So Paul writes here, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, I pointed out four principles from this text last time, and let's just hit these again quickly. Number one, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, or sorry, love is the summation and of and fulfillment of the law, so it is impossible to separate love and morality. He, he lists these commandments, and he says, you know, uh, it's all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. And we talked about this last time. There is objective morality. I don't have the time to unpack that again. That's where I spent the most time in the last message. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it if you weren't here. But I think, I hope that I showed that even if you look at it just logically, there has to be absolute truth. There has to be objective morality. The question is, what is that? But the point that he's making here is that you can't separate love and morality. There's objective morality, there's objective truth. Uh, and you may say, well, I don't like that idea. But I don't think that's a wise way to approach it. It doesn't matter what we like, the issue is what's true. But even beyond that, this is what I would say. You know, some of what we hear in the, in, in the Christian community or people who consider Christianity today is, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't accept this part of the Bible. I mean, you've probably heard that in regard to the issues that we're talking about today. And so I would just say simply this. If, if, if you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to ascribe or subscribe to Christian morality. I would encourage you to consider the issue of who is Jesus Christ and what can he do in your life. Amen. I'm not here to try to change your lifestyle. I'm not here to try to change your morality. I, I'm here to try to persuade you to believe in Jesus and then he'll take care of the other stuff. But if you call yourself a Christian, you can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible that you want to believe and follow. Amen. Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord over our bedrooms. He's Lord over our sexual lives. He, he's Lord over every part of our lives. And we can't say, you know, I want Jesus. I want a fire insurance policy, but I'm going to think, believe, do what I want to do. You can reject Jesus. You can uh, trust Jesus but you can't do it on your terms. You cannot dictate the terms of the relationship. He does that. Yeah. 
And so that's a decision that we have to make. In other words, if we're going to follow Jesus, it means following his word. It means following him in our sexual lives. You say, I'm not perfect sexually. Well, nobody is. But it means like every other part of life, we are surrendered to his authority and we are living a life of ongoing repentance. That's what it means to be a Christian. So understand, we don't get to make the choice about this. And if you're gonna follow Christ, it can't be on your terms. And so, that's something we have to wrestle with. Don't be deceived. Don't think just because you prayed a prayer, it's like now you can pick and choose and you can have the parts of Jesus or the parts of the Bible that you like and that you want. It's really all or nothing. There is objective morality. Number two, verse eight tells us here that we have an ongoing moral obligation to love everyone. Owe no one anything except to love one another for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, everyone means everyone. The Bible teaches us that everyone is our neighbor. Everyone. I don't care what kind of lifestyle that they're living. Everyone. Listen, something I believe biblically, I do not believe in the concept of sexual orientation. If you study it historically, it comes from Sigmund Freud, not the pages of scripture. I do not believe there are classes or types of people. I believe there's one type of person, people made in the image of God as male and female. That's what scripture teaches. There's only people made in the image of God. All of us marred and corrupted by the fall in different ways. Homosexuality is one of those ways, but we all have our ways that the fall has affected us, corrupted us, and it comes out of us in different ways. But we're all people made in the image of God, which means everyone is to be loved and valued. You see, sometimes people, I've been asked this question before, and a lot of Christians, get this question. It's like, if you stand biblically on the issue of racism, which means you oppose it, you call it a sin, sometimes people will ask the question, well, how can you be uh, against racism and against homosexuality? Again, that's the cultural narrative. Well, the answer is very simple. There's one race, the human race, of people made in the image of God and we have different amounts of melanin and different tones of skin because God is a very creative artist and that's the way he's made things, but that's fixed by our creator, whereas homosexual sexual activity is a choice, and so we're talking apples and oranges when it comes to the categories here. But everyone is to be loved, not loved because they're a homosexual or loved in spite of practicing homosexuality, just love because they're a person. And, you know, the thing I mentioned Tim Gill before, you know, he's received death threats, terrible, awful, profane messages from people who profess to be Christians. Do you understand? That's sin and that's awful. But it leads to another question, I think. And this is what some people think. And that is, 
do you have to agree with or affirm another person's lifestyle in order to love that person? Because people say, if you don't accept me for who I am, if you don't affirm what I'm doing, you don't really love me. So, do you have to agree with someone and or affirm their lifestyle in order to love them? I would say no. Here's a simple example. And I'm going to refer to David Robinson's speech, the book Love Speech, a lot in this, including here. But if your child is a drug addict, say teenager, adult child is a drug addict, in order to love that child, should you affirm that child's lifestyle? Would the loving thing not be, I mean, to still love that child, to still try to keep a relationship with that child, but to do everything that you could, which at some point may mean doing nothing and letting them experience the consequences of their actions so they can come to the end of him or herself, but uh, doing whatever you can to try to get them to change their lifestyle so they don't destroy themselves. David uh, says this. He says, not only can you love your child and reject his lifestyle, but you ought to love him and you ought to reject his lifestyle. To accept a lifestyle that harms your child is not loving. You see, when the Bible says here, do no harm, I mean, it's talking about do no evil, but it doesn't mean that love never inflicts pain. See, somebody may say, well, you know, you're hurting me, you're wounding me because you don't agree with what I do. But if what you're doing is wrong, and speaking the truth may save you from that wrong, that pain is keeping, the goal is to keep someone from a greater pain. And so that would be a moral good, not a moral harm. Think about it this way. I may have mentioned this before, but um, you know, last year, Jay, our son, came home for a bit while Robin was going through some of the cancer stuff. And uh, one Sunday evening, uh, him and David Nolan went to play golf. And as they were finishing up, David noticed that there was a lady who works there that had collapsed and they saw her. And a few months before that, Jay had gone through CPR training at his work and he went and did CPR on her and he saved her life. But in the process of doing CPR, and I think this usually happens when you do it right, it broke her sternum. Now, I used my clergy privileges and actually went and saw this lady in the hospital uh, after that had happened. And can I tell you, she was not screaming and yelling at me because my son harmed her in breaking her sternum. He she was thanking me profusely because my son had saved her life. If you, quote, harm someone in the process of saving their life or saving their soul, you've not done an immoral thing. You've done one of the greatest things you could ever do. We're called to speak the truth in love. And folks, this is, can be a very real thing. I was having a conversation with a doctor recently who said to me that they are being pushed in some circles, I'm talking about doctors, that if a child experiences gender dysphoria, 
which is a normal part of growing up, you know, little boys and girls trying to figure out what it means to be a boy or a girl and say a boy decides one day to put on his mom's high heels or something. They're being pushed to, because of that one thing, to begin medical hormonal treatments to bring about gender change. He said, I'd go to jail before I did that. David says, let me make this very clear. You're not doing anyone a favor by being silent or by going with the flow or by picking your battles. You're not helping those around you by pretending to believe a lie and encouraging them by your silence to believe the lie themselves. Neither are you helping yourself by being dishonest with yourself and not standing up for the truth, whether it is popular to do so or not. Speak up for what is right, no matter how others may treat you, but speak in love, respect people, show people that the reason you speak is not to condemn and to shame others, but to help others and show love. It is the friend helping the friend out of the way of the oncoming bus. Be that friend. Do not be the bus. You can't separate love and morality. You can't separate love and truth. We're called to speak the truth in love. We're called to love everyone, but it's not loving to participate in a lie. Number three, love is expressed by righteous actions. So we love people by treating them in a godly manner. Verse nine, again, ties this together. You should not commit adultery because we're not loving, uh, you know, you're not loving your spouse, you're not loving your family by committing adultery. Obviously, if you're committing murder, that's not love. If you're stealing, that's not love. If you're bearing false witness, you're slandering someone, you're harming, you're not loving. If you're coveting, you're being selfish, you're not loving. Love is an obedient, godly action. And you see, this shows our sinfulness and our need for a savior because we fail to love like we should. And again, I'm not being moralistic here. If you're not a Christian, I'm not telling you to go and change your lifestyle. I'm telling you to look at the law of God, see that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and your only hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he died for you and that he rose from the dead. But as Christians, we are then to live differently. We are to live lives of love out of obedience to the commands of God because Jesus Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But this gives us an objective standard that shows that we fall short. We need that because we all have this great capacity for self-justification. We had a friend stop by yesterday who had been in driving school yesterday morning. He's not a bad driver. He got one ticket for going 20 miles over the speed limit. He had to go to driving school. But he was telling us about a lady who was there, and I guess it was the instructor that maybe was trying to find out why they were there. And he asked, are you a good driver? And the lady said, yes. And then he began to ask some questions about her driving history. He's like, how many wrecks have you had? She said, I've totaled every car I've ever owned. Uh, how many tickets uh, ha have you gotten? Six. Uh, but she was a good driver. And we tend to be the same way spiritually. We tend to compare ourselves to other people and make ourselves look better than we really are, but the law of God shows us that we fall short. And then verse 10, he says, love does no harm. So anything that harms someone else is unloving and wrong. And so then, these concepts about love and morality... How do we apply them to some of these issues of homosexuality and gender in our society today? And understand, that's the angle that I'm coming from. 
A few years ago at True Life, I preached more of just a straightforward exposition of Romans 1 about the issue of homosexuality. You can go back and, and, and find that. Maybe we'll post it this week. But, but here's, here's the idea, I think. We're commanded to love everyone, but according to these verses, love is truly expressed by how we treat people. So when we do something wrong, it is harmful and therefore unloving, even if the intent is to be loving. You're saying, you may have feelings of love towards someone, but if you're expressing that in a sexually immoral way, it's not loving when it's all said and done because there's moral harm involved in it. That's how Romans 13, eight through 10 would apply to this question. So as we talk about sexuality, what are we talking about from a biblical perspective? And again, let me frame this very clearly. If you're not a Christian, I'm not telling you how to live your life. But understand, you're gonna to have to deal with the consequences of how you live your life now and before God someday. If you are a Christian, the Bible says to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter four to abstain from all sexual immorality. Part of Jesus being our Lord is him being Lord over this part of our lives as well. We don't get to pick and choose what's right and what's wrong. What is right and wrong? Well, C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He said, the Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness uh, to your partner or else total abstinence. We've said it this way at True Life. This is in our statement of faith. We believe that sexual intimacy should only occur within a marriage relationship as described above, meaning monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual. Um, Got to give all those qualifiers now. We believe that any sexual intimacy occurring outside of this context is sinful and harmful. This includes, but is not limited to, fornication, pornography, incest, adultery, homosexual sexual intimacy, bisexual sexual intimacy, bestiality, bigamy, polygamy, polyandry, and any other sexual activity other than sexual intimacy between a man and a woman who are exclusively married to one another for as long as they both shall live. And I read that in part just to show you that we're not trying to pick on homosexuality. We're saying that this is God's standard, and so anything outside of that is wrong. Now, why do we say this is God's standard? Well, Genesis 2.24, which is then quoted again by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, is God's definition of marriage. And it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is God's pattern God's definition of marriage. Man leaves his father and mother. The two are permanently joined together, uh, make a covenant with one another in a public ceremony. Then they become one flesh. Then they consummate uh, the relationship. And so sex then is the physical acting out of the spiritual covenant and outside of covenant, it's wrong. In fact, David uh, says it in love speech, maybe better than... I've ever heard it said before. He says this. He says, when a person intentionally engages in sexual relationships outside of marriage, he is always treating his sexual partner as a thing, as an object to be used for his own personal pleasure. Now, some of you may be having an internal reaction to that. I hope you are. 
Because listen to this, if he had truly desired the best for the other person, he would have not put the cart before the horse. He would, have, he would make sure that he had given the level of commitment that is proper to a sexual relationship before he took the other person's body in sexual activity. We can all see how much damage fornication and a general lack of commitment is caused by the high number of fatherless homes in this world and the resulting harm often suffered by the children in these homes. I believe it is an inarguable fact that the greatest problem in the United States of America today is fatherlessness. Because statistically, it is at the root of all the other problems that we have. And this is why God, who knows all, has given this context. God created sex. God's not against sex. He's pro-sex in the context of marriage, where there's commitment, where there's covenant, and, uh, you know, as the, the literal symbol of joining together and becoming one. Do you understand? And, and as we talk about the natural law today, and we talk about gender and male-female things, God designed our bodies so we could literally become one flesh as husband and wife in the most intimate way and act possible as an expression of this covenant that we've made with one another. That's the point of sex. Now, maybe that leads into talking about gender. What's God say about gender? Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus, again, quoted this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. So, in our statement of faith at True Life, it says, we believe that God created humans as male and female. We believe that gender is a wonderful and holy gift. We believe that disagreement with one's gender, attempts to change one's gender, live consistently with a gender opposite to the one a person is born with, or to live as though one did not have a specific gender is sinful and harmful. We believe that protecting the genders of our children and ourselves is the duty of every believer in Jesus Christ. We would say that we believe that it is not only biblical, but it is a scientific fact that gender and sexuality is a biological reality and not a psychological or sociological construct. This is what the world has said throughout human history. This is what science says. And um, no kind of social engineering will change the reality of that. Now, let's think about homosexuality for a minute. Let's go in the book of Romans to Romans chapter 1. And I just want to read you a text. There's several texts in Scripture. This is the longest, maybe the most important, with the issue of homosexuality. And um, I'll try to give a little bit of explanation. Like I said, I've preached on this before, and it's not really so much the, the point or intent of this message for me to do a full-scale exposition. But I, but I want you to understand and just read for yourself what God says. And again, if you're not a Christian, you can decide whether or not you want to follow Jesus. If you are a Christian, you don't get to pick and choose. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or push down the truth in unrighteousness. So this passage is really about original sin and the fact that God punishes all sin. 
And, and it's about, uh, you know, what could be called natural law, the revelation of God in, in conscience and creation. The fact that we intuitively can see the creator and the creation around it. The fact that intuitively within us, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we know there's right and wrong. Here's what he says. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God has revealed it to them. How? He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So basically he's saying that we in our fallen state, our natural tendency is to reject him. That's what he's talking about. Then notice the, the beginning of verse 24. The first words are important. He says, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, if we're going to function correctly spiritually, if we're going to understand the Bible correctly, here's, here's a key. We got to get the root issue and we got to get the fruit issue. The root issue here is a rejection of God, a desire to be our own God, a desire to be like the creator instead of the creation, reversing that and us being in control. That's the root issue. All of us have that issue. You know the only way that issue can be overcome? It can only be overcome by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in the new birth as we're drawn to Jesus Christ. We're all in the same boat spiritually. Homosexuality and every other sin is not the root issue, it's the fruit issue. And so here's the thing, and we're going to see this as we go through this. Homosexuality is not the ultimate sin. I think the church has taught it that way in the past, and that's a problem. The ultimate sin is our desire to be the creator, believing the lie, rejecting God. But now we do need to say, because I think there's danger in the church of drifting in the other direction, that homosexuality is certainly a sin. Not the sin. It's not worse than other sins. I hope you see that by the time we read through the, the whole passage. But I hope you also see that it is different than other sins because it literally goes against nature. So he says, for this reason, what's the reason? Believing the lie, rejecting him. God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving their natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And if you study homosexuality, especially male homosexuality, you will find how physically destructive that it is, which if you want to dismiss the Bible, you should find that modern science actually verifies what Romans 1.27 says. It is one of the most, sodomy is one of the most unhealthy practices that someone could ever engage in. 
That's a medical fact. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. It's a whole laundry list of sin. He's not just focusing on one thing, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And then there are people in the body of Christ who need to hear verse 32, are deserving of death not only who do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, some people are like, this may not be my thing, but if it's your thing, who am I to judge you? Romans 1.32 says, if that's your attitude, you're guilty too. So, this is what the Bible says, but again, you say, well, what if I don't believe the Bible? Well, let's just kind of go back to this idea of love and morality Romans 13, 8 through 10. That's what I said the pr- approach I was taking. And let's think about the natural law for a minute. So you don't believe the Bible. Let's think about the natural law. And David says this about the natural law. He says, when the natural law says do no harm, it means do no wrong, do no evil, do nothing against the natural order, do nothing unnatural. So I would say when someone is trying to change their gender, and I understand there could be medical problems. I'm just talking about someone who says, you know, it's a psychological construct. I can be whatever gender I want to be. Or when someone is engaging in immoral sexual activity, but let's focus on homosexuality. I would say that these relationships are immoral because they're unnatural. David says this, it is obvious to everyone who is honest that male and female bodies are designed for sexual intercourse between opposite genders. The sexual organs literally fit together naturally. And at the beginning of his book, he starts with the story of the emperor's new clothes. If you remember that fairy tale, I don't have time to remind you of it right now. But he says, imagine that little boy in that story, you know, shouted out to everybody, you know, the emperor has no clothes on, uh, being introduced to the concept of heterosexual and homosexual sex. He would blurt out what was obvious to everyone who is honest. Homosexual sex doesn't make sense. This is obvious and true. If not for the pressure put on people to accept this behavior, everyone else would say the same thing. Ask yourselves these questions. If a man was supposed to have sex with other men, why would he be born with a body obviously designed to have sex with a woman? Why would he be given a body capable of producing children through heterosexual sex? The the same questions apply to homosexual women. Homosexual sexual activity is clearly a perversion. It goes against the clear design of the human body and any form of its expression is basically just trying in some way to mimic that design. Number two, these relationships are immoral because they are harmful, which includes moral and spiritual harm. Again, David says this, sex has consequences. The consequences of sexual activity are both physical and emotional. Some of the physical consequences of sex can be pregnancy and sound health, as well as disease and decreased health. Some of the emotional consequences of sexual activity can be joy, emotional fulfillment, and increased feelings of well-being, as well as depression, shame, guilt, anger, and feelings of being used. As I wrote earlier, even within the context of male-female sexual activity, there are perversions. However, there is a context when none of the negative physical and emotional consequences of sexual activity necessarily exist. 
Notice I did not state that the negative consequences never exist. I said they do not necessarily exist. But if a man and a woman abstain from sexual activity until they have entered a monogamous lifelong commitment to one another in marriage, disease is extremely unlikely to result. Shame, guilt, anger, and feelings of being used are also unlikely to result. And a pregnancy is far less likely to result in a single parent raising a child. In fact, physical and emotional well-being are most likely to occur in a relationship of this time. Uh, of this type. And so what I would say is I don't see how that can really be argued against. And anything outside of that causes different kinds of harm, including if it's actually wrong, harming you in your relationship with God. You know, one of the things that I think betrays this argument that love can never be wrong and people are kind of free to do whatever they want to do is why do people who believe that still struggle with guilt and shame? Because if that's true, what is there to feel guilty about and what is there to be ashamed of? Therefore, immoral sexual activity is not truly an expression of love. The sexual activity even though there may be feelings of love that two people have between each other. I'm not here to debate whether or not people have feelings of love. I'm just saying this is the wrong way to express it because you can't separate love and morality. And in this is the sense in which love can be wrong because it's not really love if it's not moral. Now, you may say, well, it's natural People are born this way. I can't help it. It's my identity. It's who I am. And, and, and listen, I, I want to say something to you, especially our teenagers, but really people of any age. If you hear in, in society today that, you know, if, if you ever have a feeling or a temptation or a desire or a thought that uh, you're gay or that, you know, you have an interest in someone of the same sex, it means that you are. I want you to know that is a lie. I want you to listen to this. If you've not heard anything else I've said, again, this is David, but I want you to hear this. He says, I sometimes have a strong desire to lie in order to cover up some wrong thing I have done. However, I do not choose to identify myself as a liar. In fact, I try not to lie because I have other thoughts and feelings that want me to make, that make me want to do what is morally right. People who have homosexual thoughts and feelings are not homosexuals in their essence. It is not who they are in any sense that necessarily must make up their identity. The fact that you may have homosexual thoughts and desires does not mean that you must identify yourself as a homosexual. Even less does it mean that you must engage in homosexual sex. If homosexuality is unnatural, harmful, and therefore morally wrong, you should work to battle against any other thoughts and feelings that make you want to do immoral things. Please pay attention here. There is nothing morally wrong with having thoughts and feelings that make you want to do what is unnatural and immoral. In a biblical sense, we call that temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is sinful to judge people just simply because we have a they have a different temptation than we do. He says, I myself and all other people have thoughts and feelings that make us want to do what is unnatural and immoral. If you have homosexual thoughts and feelings, let go of any shame. For those of you who do not have homosexual thoughts and feelings, stop trying to shame those who do. You're not any better than the person who has those thoughts and feelings. You would not want others to shame you for your personal and moral thoughts and feelings. 
You can talk to somebody. You can reject. Uh, you don't have to do what you think. Just because you feel something at some moment does not make that who you are. People say, well, aren't people born this way? Well, I, I think the scientific evidence is lacking there. But let's just for argument's sake say that you have some genetic predisposition towards homosexuality. Well, some people have a genetic predisposition towards being an alcoholic. That doesn't make them an alcoholic. It's still a choice as to whether or not you act on that. All of this at the end of the day is a choice. You can choose to do what's right in the power of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But let me finish with this. My ultimate concern here is not homosexuality and gender. I think this is the second time, maybe the third, that I've preached on this directly in 18 plus years of preaching at True Life. My ultimate concern is Jesus. Now, I am concerned that you not believe the lies of the culture, that we follow scripture, but I'm more concerned that we see, again, the root issue is the condition of our heart, the rejection of the truth, the rejection of God. This is a fruit issue. Some of you may be struggling with this as a fruit issue. We're all, though, in the same boat with the same root issue of needing to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Are you surrendered to him? Are you living life on his terms or your own terms? To live life on his terms means that he's Lord. To live life on your own terms means that you're trying to be Lord. But it all applies to this issue as well. In an interview, popular blogger Jen Hatmaker was asked, do you think an LGBT relationship can be holy? She replied, I do. And my views here are tender. This is a very nuanced conversation and it's hard to nail down in one sitting. I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and, 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 and the church, so on and so forth. But remember former lesbian Rosaria Butterfield that I referenced before, here's how she responded to this. She says, if this were 1999, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a bomb of Gilead. I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish uh, both in my tenured academic discipline of queer theory and English literature and culture and in my church. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Today I hear Jen's words and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, I want you to hear this. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I did, not, I, I did not swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life that I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face this question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam, which is what she's saying happened, 
I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature deceives us. Did you hear that? It may not be homosexuality. But wherever in our lives something feels like it's good and necessary and we have to do it, but it stands against God's word, it's revealing where our sin nature has corrupted us and where we need to repent and trust and surrender. <clears throat> she said elsewhere, but when I came to Christ, I experienced what 19th century Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. At the time of my conversion, my lesbian identity and feelings did not vanish. As my union with Christ grew, though, the sanctification that it birthed put a wedge between my old self and my new one. New one. In time, this contradiction exploded, and I was able to claim identity in Christ alone. You see, the answer is Jesus. The answer for all of us is Jesus. It doesn't matter what the fruit issues are. The root issue is the same. And we need a new heart. And only Jesus can give us that. Um, think about this. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Paul writes, And you, <clears throat> being dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And I've thought about the scripture in a new way recently because we hear so much in our society about cancel culture. You said something you shouldn't have 30 years ago, you get canceled. You're not woke enough, you get canceled. It's to the level that Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, whatever uh, he wants to call himself, has now been canceled because uh, you know, he said that uh, transgender males shouldn't compete in female sports and he's running for governor if Newsom loses the recall in California as a GOP and he's conservative in some ways when it comes to financial things. And, so, and, and because he's rich, and privileged and all of this. He doesn't have enough intersections to be woke enough. And so now he's gotten canceled by that crowd. So where is it gonna end? Right, if like the poster child for transgenderism isn't enough, where is it gonna end? And here's my point. The world accuses Christians of being judgmental. Do you see the hypocrisy? But even beyond that, here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus doesn't cancel us. He just cancels our sin. That's what that verse tells us. On the cross, he canceled our sin so he could redeem us. He doesn't eliminate us as persons. He doesn't eliminate our value. We have value and dignity and worth because we're created in the image of God as male and female. That's been corrupted. It's been distorted. It's been marred by the fall. We're all sinners. We're all separated from God, but that puts us all in the same boat. Doesn't matter what the fruit is. That's the root, but the good news is, is that Jesus came and he died for us and he paid the price for all of our sins. In a sense, he was canceled so we could be set free because the son of God, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the beauty of the gospel and that's the only answer for the human heart and that's the only answer for our lives and that's the only answer for our society and that's the only answer for our world. 
What are you trusting in? Are you standing in the grace of God today? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to encourage you right now.